you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, and Ketotarian. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the Telehealth Center, Becoming a Patient, we actually have brand new telehealth patient options now open. And you can learn about the books, the podcast. There's tons of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And if you haven't heard the news, I have a brand new book, my fourth book. It's called Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. Man, this book, out of all the books I've written so far, is my favorite. It's really exploring the exciting research about how things like chronic stress and shame and trauma and even intergenerational trauma, how these mental, emotional, spiritual things can dysregulate our nervous system, raising inflammation levels, impacting our gut health, our brain health, our hormone health. So the feeling side of it, I mean, hence the name gut feelings. So exploring that side of it, but also the gut side of gut feelings, the physiological stuff that I get to measure on my patient's labs, things like underlying gut problems and things like um, nutrient deficiencies and chronic infections like mold toxicity or chronic Lyme disease, how those physiological things, i.e. the gut things, can impact our mood, impacting things like anxiety and depression and brain fog and fatigue. So it's called Gut Feelings, and I'm so excited about it. And when you pre-order the book right now, you get tons of free healthy stuff. We have a three-week mastermind when the book comes out with myself and a few friends and colleagues of mine, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Nicola Perra, who's known as the holistic psychologist on Instagram, all three friends of mine, they all actually have been on the podcast as well, but we're having this amazing class mastermind whenever you pre-order the book. It's only for people that pre-order the book and you get lots of other healthy stuff as well. So if you want to learn more about gut feelings and all the pre-order stuff we have, we also have a quiz that I adapted from questions that I ask patients. It's 
measuring your shame flammation, a concept that I talk about in the book, that sort of intersection between the mental, emotional, spiritual facets of life for many of us and how it impacts our physical body and can literally be stored in our cells. So all of that stuff's at drwillcole.com. We're also giving away free signed books whenever you rate and review The Art of Being Well on Apple Podcasts. So no matter when you listen to this episode, every single month, my team and I will be randomly picking winners every month. You can do it two different ways. You can leave your Apple Podcast review and then leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you can take a screenshot of that Apple Podcast review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month I'll be going through with my team the Instagram messages, as well as the Apple podcast reviews. We read all of them, guys. We love it. And I'll reach out to you. I'll ask which book you want me to sign, and I'll send it out to you. All right, let's get to today's guest. She is freaking brilliant. Every single time I talk to her, I learn something new. She's never been on the podcast before. I've been on hers many times, but we are so excited to talk with Autumn Smith today. Autumn Smith is a wealth of information. She's the co-founder of Paleo Valley, one of my favorite brands out there. And she's the co-host of a top-ranked podcast as well. She's going to share with us the important role nutrition plays in so many different facets of our lives and debug so much myths when it comes to food and nutrition. And I know it's so confusing out there. Like Dr. Google is a very conflicted physician sometimes, a fickle physician, if you will. But Autumn suffered acute digestive issues since she was a teenager and numerous experts failed to offer solutions that worked. After years of dealing with poor gut health and a lack of abundant energy, she decided to take matters into her own hands. We're going to learn from her right now. This is Autumn Smith's Art of Being Well. Autumn, the tables have turned. It's now my chance to, to ask you questions. <laughs> Pretty excited. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> I've been I've been blessed to be on your podcast a few times and thank you for your support over the years. It does not go unnoticed. And I'm so honored to have you on the show. Likewise, your work is a constant source of inspiration for me. So um we appreciate you and are glad to support you in any way. And I'm feeling very honored to be here. So it's gonna be great. People are gonna learn so much. Let's get right into it. I want to talk all about meat in the United States the myths around meat, that we're going to blow people's minds about the research and the science around it. So no matter who's listening, if you're vegan, vegetarian, omnivore, carnivore, eat whatever the heck you want, you're going to learn so much from this conversation today. So let's talk about, let's set the stage with, I think the stigma that meat has in the modern American mind, the modern Western mind, where did that come from? The history is fascinating. I'd love to get detailed here about what were these several events that converged really in the 20th century of sort of the demonization of meat? Yes, this is so important. I'm doing this docuseries like we spoke about called Rethink Meat. And so I've gotten to introduce and interview a lot of experts. So there are several origins of this demonization. But the one I was most surprised by what had its roots in religion. And there's a woman named Belinda Fetke and her husband named Dr. Gary Fetke. Have you heard of them? I'm sure. I know a little bit about them, yes. Yeah, so Dr. Gary Fetke is an orthopedic surgeon down in Tasmania, and he was suggesting that his patients reduce their carbohydrate intake because he was performing amputations and learned about the benefits of a low-carb diet. But at that time, he only said just to reduce sugar. And so he got turned into the medical board by a dietitian, 
suffered four years of litigation, eventually exonerated, and he's able to speak about nutrition, but he was the first medical doctor ever silenced. And so when his wife saw him and many other experts talking about the well-documented benefits of low-carb diets, she began to look under the hood and say, what, where is this coming from? Because the research is there. And she found out Seventh-day Adventist church, there was a woman named Ellen G. White, and she had visions from God that meat was not part of kind of a Garden of Eden diet that included fruit, nuts, seeds, and whole grains. She also believed that consuming meat would lead to kind of sinful desires like masturbation. And that in order to kind of curb that behavior, we needed to find alternatives. And one of her students was actually Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, right. who created, yeah, flaked corn and wheat cornflakes, and actually the first meat alternative. And the one another, uh, Lena Cooper is also a member of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and she founded the American Dietetics Association. And so, embedded in their very education and all of the things they believe is this kind of bias against meat. So that was one influence. But then we also have entrepreneurial influences, right? With William Proctor and James Gamble, and they needed to do something with the surplus of cottonseed oil that they had from their soap making industry and candle making that was kind of dwindling. And they realized with the advent of a process called hydrogenation, they could take a solid or a liquid fat and make it solid and it looked like lard. And so without any substantiation or really investigation into the health detriments or benefits, they convinced, they had this massive marketing campaign that convinced American housewives that Crisco, which we now know at the original time it was formulated, was 50% trans fat, was a cleaner, healthier type of fat. We now know it's linked to hundreds of thousands of heart attacks a year and trans fat is now banned in the food supply. But it became a dominant fat used in our diet and still kind of remains not not trans fat necessarily, but these kind of industrial and processed man-made fats. And then we have Ansel Keys's research back in the 1950s. We had President Eisenhower. He had a heart attack. Everybody didn't understand why. And Ansel Keys kind of stepped into this void at, with his hypothesis at the time that it was saturated fat from animal products, increasing cholesterol, which led to heart attacks. And while his original correlations looked pretty sound, when statisticians came in and analyzed the data for all of the countries that were available rather than the few that he chose, it was clear that the correlation wasn't as sound as it was made out to be. And subsequent research that's only been revealed lately has shown that there are detrimental impacts of replacing saturated fats with man-made polyunsaturated fats, but that was only released lately. And then we have The Jungle. It was a book about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. We have the sugar industry coming in and funding studies to make animal fat look bad for our health because they have a lot to gain in doing so. We have environmental activists. We have this whole really biased environmental narrative that all animal agriculture is destructive. And we have, of course, you know, animal rights activists and people making plant-based proteins. And that plant-based market is huge. You can turn plant-based products into so many different kinds of foods and there's a lot to gain by doing so. And so as you see, all of these narratives have kind of converged recently and people sincerely believe that animal products are going to kill them, whereas they've been part of our evolution, right? There's a lot of benefits to really high quality animal products. And I think we're going to suffer if we continue to believe what we see in the headlines. Yeah. Well said. Oh my gosh. So we, <laughs> this confluence of different interests, right? Political interests, religious interests. Well, I mean, whatever, financial interests. So 
what you mentioned from an evolutionary standpoint, an ancestral standpoint. So what is, what are the, what's the price that we're paying, I guess, as a culture for this villainizing of meat? It's funny. I mean, you see, they actually had this really cool analysis coming out in 2022. And we know that our rates of chronic disease are rising, right? I don't think that's a secret. One out of five of our kids are overweight, you know, two out of three of us, only two out of eight of us are metabolically healthy. About 58% of our calories are coming from hyperpalatable processed foods that we know deregulate our appetite, right? And so, mm-hmm. but they're plant-based, right? So people are under the misconception that these are healthier alternatives to animal products. Whereas animal products, they not only were part of our evolution, a lot of archaeologists actually believe they catalyzed our evolution and not only meat, meat was part of it, but it was the organs, the blood, the fat. When we gained the access to tools and were able to access the entire animal, that's when we had this massive brain development. And today, animal products are some of the most nutrient-dense foods. We can talk about a recent analysis that was done that was fascinating, and also a very high-quality source of very bioavailable protein. Now, protein has a number of well-demonstrated benefits when you simply increase the percentage of protein in your diet, reducing cravings, helping burn calories, losing fat, preventing weight regain after you lose weight. I mean, we could go on and on. But when we remove animal products from our diet, and instead go towards hyperpalatable foods or maybe just more carbohydrates, we're setting ourselves up for a blood sugar roller coaster, inflammation and increased risk of disease. And just mm-hmm. we're lowering the quality of our life too, right? Mm-hmm. In doing so. Yeah. Did you know that Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? According to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some cases, it could be 100 times more polluted. According to the 2020 census report, nearly half of the population, almost 165 million people, are living in areas with unhealthy levels of ozone or air pollution. New data from the World Health Organization shows that 9 out of 10 people, 90% of people, breathe air that exceeds World Health Organization pollution limits. And that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths across the world every single year. We take about 20,000 breaths per day. Just think about that. That's almost 3,000 gallons of possibly polluted air. Airborne allergens are the most common allergy triggers such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. So what's the solution? I want to tell you about an air purifier that I use throughout my house, and it's also captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and so many other outlets. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses. Allergens can vary in size, but the average pollen size is about 25 microns. Air Doctor virtually removes 100% of particles as small as 0.003 microns in size. It's extremely effective. Like I said, I use this around my house in all the rooms. I I have it at the Functional Medicine Telehealth Center. I love them. I recommend them to patients as well. Air Doctor comes with a no questions asked 30 day money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. 
So head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code WILLCOLE, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 40% off. You are saving up to 40% off, my friends. Lock the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. That's airdoctorpro.com. Use promo code WILLCOLE to get that extra discount. And can you talk about it from... And both an evolutionary standpoint, but also just in the here and now, the connection between healthy fats and meat specifically, healthy fats are more than just meat, but healthy, nutrient-dense, whole food fats and meats being a part of brain development and our mood and neurotransmitter, just with the epidemic of mental health, brain health issues. I'd love for people to learn more about that. Yes, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because I was under the influence or under the misconception when I was young that I shouldn't be eating animal products and I didn't, I avoided them. I suffered a number of mental health issues and it wasn't until I kind of switched to a paleo diet and learned that when you eat high quality animal products, protein, really high quality fats, right? We are giving our brains the nutrients, the precursors, right? In, when it comes to protein, right? Protein breaks down into amino acids. Those are the precursors to our neurotransmitters. Animal products are also some of the richest sources of really critical nutrients for our brain, vitamin B12 being one of them. There are so many case studies of psychiatric conditions, neurological conditions that are reversible when somebody just gets adequate amounts of B12. We also have iron, right? Iron is our number one worldwide deficiency, and it is incredibly important for brain development, for the ability to focus. You see low levels in children who have ADHD. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have a very bioavailable form in meat, a far more bioavailable form than you'll find in plants, heme iron versus not non-heme iron. And then you have fats like DHA, right? So we have plant-based fats, ALA, LA, alpha linoleic acid and linoleic acid, but they're only precursors to the long chain forms like EPA and DPA and DHA, ones that our brains actually require. There's this relationship between DHA and serotonin, right? So when we have low levels of DHA, our levels of serotonin are more feel good neurotransmitter go down. And so when we don't get adequate fat in our brain, I think we don't develop normally and then we can't sustain health that has uh, dha has a big role and epa in helping reduce inflammation something i know you talk a lot about mm -hmm. so there are so many reasons why animal products are absolutely critical columbia university in 2018 actually looked at what were the most mental health protective foods and i think people were, they did both animals and vegetable foods but Organ meats were the top of the list, which so many Americans are missing out on the benefits of. Bivalves, crustaceans. So it's basically fish and organ meats were the top. And then also leafy greens and really colorful fruits and vegetables. So I just think it, it really scares me for the children, especially of this generation, who are taught that the very foods that are going to help them build not only physical but mental health are to be avoided and that processed plant-based foods can be a reasonable alternative because they just can't. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, so good. So the bioavailability of nutrients, you mentioned iron, you mentioned these essential fatty acids, different omega fats. Another one that I think of when I'm putting my clinical hat on and thinking of patients is vitamin A. People think, okay, I'm gonna focus on a lot of beta carotene rich vegetables, right? Which obviously we talked about fruits and vegetables, they have tons of health benefits, right? But specifically with true vitamin A, can you talk about the difference between that and the bioavailability of beta carotene? 
Yes. Okay. So, and, and that there's this big fear around retinol, right? Because there were some trials that showed a synthetic form was re- increasing the risk for birth side effects, birth defects, and which is absolutely scary. And there are true accounts of overconsuming vitamin A, right? If you're eating polar bear livers and other things like this, but <laughs> which all need... of us are doing polar bear livers. Yeah, be... <laughs> no one's really doing today, right? Okay. So <laughs> we're probably going to be okay. But because of that fear that, you know, somewhat justified fear, we've gone to having just like beta carotene in supplements and, and, and veering towards that or promoting beta carotene as an equivalent to retinol, the active form of vitamin A, when in fact, it's absolutely not. Okay. So they estimate, of course, it's, it's going to vary. You need 12 units of beta carotene in order to equal one unit of retinol. So you're eating, you know, like three ounces of liver or two cups of carrots. And there are certain people, conditions, hyperthyroidism, you know, gut dysfunction that can't make that conversion at all. And other people with genetics that simply reduce one's ability to make that conversion. And so, yeah, if you are not eating vitamin A in retinol form, in animal form, you might not be getting adequate form. Your body might not be able to actually make the conversion from the carotenoids and beta carotene that a lot of us have been told to consume. Which, I mean, all of these nutrients like iron, you mentioned B12, vitamin A. I mean, vitamin A specifically, why should people care? I mean, I don't feel like enough people talk about vitamin A and like the power that it wields in inflammation regulation and our immune system and our skin health too. People think of that, but it's not just the outside in. People use the retinol creams from the outside in, but it's also what you eat can be powerful in providing your body with this very important nutrient. Yes, like you said, and even reproductive health, reproductive health, inflammation reduction, skin health is like, like you said, my favorite. But yeah, vitamin A is very underrated and very difficult to get if you're not consuming animal products. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. So what do you say to the person that's out there that's like, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I have, maybe they have a history of quote unquote high cholesterol and they maybe know they, they're, they're put, there's fear around that. They have a family history of heart attack and stroke, and mm-hmm. they are told by doctors and family members to limit fat because of that. Or maybe they've seen for themselves when they eat meat, their cholesterol is influenced. What's the misconception or the conflation there? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a big can of worms right there. So <laughs> I would recommend that they watch, you know, look at the book by Nina Teicholz. She really, so there's two different things happening, right? The saturated fat hypothesis that saturated fat is going to raise your risk of cholesterol and that is going to raise your risk of heart attack. So when you really dig into the research, there's a lot of trials. There's randomized controlled trials that have actually shown, like we talked about in the very beginning, that if you replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, it does in fact lower the levels of serum cholesterol in your blood. That does happen, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a reduced risk of total mortality, which is the end point that we really care about, right? And so I think there's just this overemphasis on, yes, it does really reduce cholesterol, but does that necessarily mm-hmm. do what we think it does? And Nina Teicholz has this organization called the Nutrition Coalition. And she has kind of compiled all of this research. And she says, to date, there's been 20 reviews refuting the fact that saturated fat is actually driving rates of heart disease risk when it comes to all-cause mortality. And she even presented this evidence in the most recent 
consensus or when they the committee that was creating America's dietary guidelines, but they essentially ignored her. But I do sincerely believe that over time, just like cholesterol was essentially vindicated in 2015, you no longer see restrictions in the dietary guidelines. I think that will happen with saturated fat eventually, but we need to give it time. The other really cool piece about that is we lump saturated fat into one category, but in my dissertation, we're learning about there's different saturated fats with different effects, right? So lauric and myristic saturated fat, they do raise cholesterol, but stearic acid is a neutral fat. And then there's longer chain saturated fats that actually seem to be protective. So it's just, it is not a simple narrative like we've been led to believe. Mm -hmm. And if you are consuming animal products and your cholesterol is going up, I recommend you talk to Dr. Cole. There's other reasons for cholesterol to be going up, right? Thyroid conditions, inflammation in the body. And yes, you could have some genetics that might make animal products impact your cholesterol differently. And that would be something you'd want to investigate with a functional medicine practitioner. Mm -hmm. But from what I've found for most people, it's really not a concern. And if you just get rid of the processed foods and the inflammation in the body, that does a lot more good than reducing the risk of saturated fat. The other thing is I have both genes for Alzheimer's, APOE44. And they say for some people with that specific condition, saturated fat might have more debt detrimental impacts. But I do think for most people, it's really, really healthy. And that, that 2022 analysis showed that as our rates of disease have risen, our consumption of saturated fats specifically from animal sources has declined. So yeah, again, another level of evidence. Yeah. Right. So I echo that wholeheartedly in what I see labs is that oftentimes if you do, if somebody has these higher small dense LDL particles, which are protein, right? Carriers of cholesterol. The analogy that I often think of here is like, it's like blaming the, the fireman for the fire, right? If you see high cholesterol levels, it's typically a response, a repairing response to that inflammatory damage from inflammation. So the body's trying to repair things from a cellular membrane standpoint, if you will. And you touched on another very important thing that oftentimes people overlook is sluggish thyroid levels, specifically lower T3 and free T3, will inhibit the clearance of cholesterol. So we're seeing the cholesterol is sort of the problem, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum, that there's a larger context as to why these cholesterol levels are off in the first place, which I completely agree with you. Total cholesterol by itself is a very incomplete perspective on the cholesterol, what's the true picture? I mean, so do you recommend like specific, like what we run for patients is like NMR panel and looking at that subfractionation of particles and looking at triglycerides and your metabolic health, but any labs yeah. that you would recommend people to look into there? Yeah, exactly what you said there. And then noting your levels of inflammation, looking at CRP, of course, thyroid function and on and on. And the other thing that was, I think was interesting is some experts, I mean, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> dissonance here, but believe that it's the oxidation of those LDL particles that is the true culprit rather than just the LDL particles themselves. And there are people who believe that switching from animal fats to a higher intake of polyunsaturated fats, specifically vegetable oils, might be one element or one dietary factor that could increase the likelihood of that oxidative process. Yeah. And then you look, think of all those studies where that sort of implicate saturated fat into, you know, heart disease, but, you know, 
it's causation versus correlation, right? The average American isn't just eating this quote unquote saturated fat. It is the mixed meal as some studies call it, right? It's the high carb, high sugar. It's the McDonald's meal. It's the fast food meal. It's the white bread plus the meat, plus the soda, plus the fries, which tons of vegetable oils, right? And then we blame saturated fat as the problem. Yes, that is the big elephant in the room, right? Epidemiology is this... A lot of these studies demonizing saturated fat are epidemiological in nature, meaning they cannot ascertain cause and effect. And like you said, most Americans consuming red meat because it's been demonized for so long are also consuming a lot of fast food, a lot of processed foods. They're exercising less. They're probably drinking more. They might be more inclined to smoke. You know, their lives are more sedentary. There was a fascinating study called the Health Food Shoppers Study that actually tried to control for this variable by, in a genius way, looking at people who shopped only at health food stores. And what they found was that there was no difference in longevity between those who ate meat and those who did not eat meat when they were all shopping and maybe living a healthier lifestyle to begin with. And you see the same thing happening. A lot of studies look at Seventh-day Adventists, and that's a very vegetarian, like we, they kind of demonize animal products and avoid them, but they also have this healthy levels of community and, you know, service and exercise and When you compare them to Mormons, another group that kind of has those same healthful lifestyle factors, again, the differences aren't aren't there. (laughs) And one eat meat, one eats meat, and one does not. Wow, fascinating. Hydration is more than just drinking water. That's what Lauren Picasso, a lifelong endurance athlete, discovered as she struggled to stay hydrated no matter how much water she drank. I see that so much with patients. Lauren founded Cure, a science-backed electrolyte drink mix to make hydration really easy for everyone. Did you know that 75% or more of Americans are chronically dehydrated, but science shows that staying hydrated often requires more than water alone. Without essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium, we can't replenish ourselves from everyday activities like exercise travel, drinking alcohol, or health problems. Cure is a hydration brand with a science-backed formula, plant-based ingredients, no added sugar, and four times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. Cure is based on the World Health Organization's formula for oral rehydration solution, which has been proven to hydrate as effectively as an IV drip and two times faster than water alone. Each packet of Cure contains a precise ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium to facilitate rapid hydration directly into your bloodstream. Cure uses clean ingredients like coconut water and pink Himalayan salt that are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and have no added sugar. Get 20% off your first order at curehydration.com with the code WILLCOLE. Again, that's code WILLCOLE for 20% off your first order at curehydration.com. That's C-U-R-E-H-Y-D-R-A-T-I-O-N.com. Well, I mean, now that we're talking about Seventh-day Adventists and, you know, I think of the Blue Zones and people like cite Yorba Linda, right, as sort of this sort of bigger area of Seventh-day Adventists and different Blue Zones or different areas where people live a longer life. And they often use the Blue Zones as 
okay, those people eat more plants, right? And then they say, again, it's causation versus correlation, but you mentioned these other variables, right? It's not just about the foods that people eat. But what's your thoughts there around longevity, societies or cultures that live long lives and the foods that they eat? Does the data show one or the other, like more plant-based versus more omnivore? Yeah, you know what? It's it's a very interesting question, right? A lot of nuance there, but you know, for one thing, Hong Kong, they have the longest life expectancy and they have the highest rates of meat consumption, right? <laughs> and there's going to be other elements that play, right? You know, socioeconomic status and and then we have India, a largely vegetarian country, and they have one of the lower rates of, you know, longevity. And then you also have cultures that a lot of people believe that the blue zones aren't eating meat, but some of them are eating a lot of pork. And I've actually I remember a study that I read more recently that showed higher levels of protein intake from animals. I think they were eating a lot of chicken was actually protective because it helped them maintain strength into their later stages. So I have heard from Dr. Gary Fetke that these blue zones are, you know, they have a lot of Seventh-day Adventist influence in them and that they don't always accurately reflect what's actually happening in the countries. Mm -hmm. But if you do, like, I think Hong Kong is just one case in point where yeah. they eat more meat than anyone and they're, they're doing fine. So I just, I don't think it's as clear cut as we'd like to put right. this. Well, it's almost like, I mean, this is how research is is oftentimes used, right? It's if it doesn't fit a narrative, we will cherry pick what we like to fit yeah. the narrative. I mean, we could use that. That that happens so much in science and in politics and in so many, you know, in the news cycle, right? If it's outside of the narrative, let's ignore that. But yeah, it's multifactorial. It's a conflict many factors, right? Yeah. And I'd I I know we touched upon it uh, the nutrient density of meat but I mean I'd like to kind of touch on this one more time before we move on of maybe re the reduction of beef with just saturated fat right and what I have found is the ample amounts of omega fats in grass fed beef which people think of just omega fats as fish or nuts and seeds but can you talk a little bit about that? That's red meat is actually when it's raised appropriately, and we'll get into that in a moment, is a great source of omega fats as well. Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite areas. There have been a few papers published about this, and then a number of papers published in animals where you can eat beef, and particularly grass-fed beef, and it isn't, this is where people get confused, it isn't that the absolute amount of omega-3 fats, DHA, EPA, is going to be large, but their ability to be used and raise serum levels is pretty profound, right? And so there was one study in 2011 that did just that. They took grass-fed beef and lamb and showed versus conventional and showed that the grass-fed beef was far higher levels of serum and even red blood cell omega-3 concentrations. And then another one looked at if we eat conventional versus grass-fed beef, can it be considered a significant source? Like, could you meet your requirements from it? And they showed it, it was really impressive that it actually could be considered a legitimate source of omega-3 fatty acids especially because some people don't want to eat fish. And so, yeah, so there is really good quality research to show that just feeding animals appropriately and eating beef and lamb can be a great source of those long chain omega fatty acids that we were talking about that we need mm -hmm. for inflammation reduction, brain health, and a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. Then you hear this conversation around 
plant proteins, right? That's used a lot on a diff, on a lot of different marketing, like boxes and labels, plant protein, plant protein. And we've had different conversations on the podcast around essential amino acids. So the listeners of the show know a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear your take on the difference there because you can't, not all protein is equal, right? So what should we people be looking yeah. out for when it comes to the specific type of proteins, i.e. amino acids that we need? Yes. Okay. So I like to think we have 20 amino acids, right? The body uses nine of them are considered essential, meaning that we cannot make them. We have to eat them. And so we put them in two camps, proteins, right? They are complete. They contain all essential amino acids or they are incomplete. They don't. And so a lot of times vegetarian sources are incomplete sources. They don't have all of the nine essential amino acids. And when that happens, your body it can halt things like muscle protein synthesis. It kind of creates a ceiling for the utilization of those other amino acids simply because you don't have the right ratios. And when we get a nutrition label, right, we see just protein as if it's all the same and if it's all equivalent, but it's absolutely not. And animal sources are at higher quality because not only because they're more complete, but also because their body seems to be able to utilize them more efficiently. And Plant proteins are often missing things like leucine, which is really important for that muscle protein synthesis and cysteine and methionine, like I said, and you can combine them, right? It, it can be done. And if you're very mindful of it, but what, what often happens is you'll eat a lot more calories or carbohydrates in order to get that. Just for a quick example, you could have about a hundred calories in shrimp for 20 grams of protein, or, you know, 200 calories of lentils or edamame or 500 calories of peanut butter. And, you know, for some people that is going to be not a, not a good idea, right? Because if you're trying to lose weight or other things, but yes, and you can increase the absolute amount of protein um, you're consuming and it doesn't seem to matter as much there. But if you're looking for efficiency, less calories, just ease of life, and just being able to have peace of mind around the fact that I'm getting all the amino acids that I need to, you know, age gracefully, improve my brain health, keep my muscles where we want them to be. Animal products are absolutely, it's indisputable that they are higher quality. Source. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when I wrote Ketotarian in 2018, it, you know, it, I wrote it in part to show the plant-based worlds, these basic clinical nutrition facts, right? Like how can you go plant-based in a more clean way, right? Instead of being this sort of carbitarian, just needing tons of sugar <laughs> and carbs and plant proteins that maybe are hard in your digestion and gut health. And on top of that, this calorie surplus because of the amount of carbs you're having as well. That, I mean, bringing in these nutrient-dense meats like wild-caught fish that you mentioned earlier as being these great sources of long-chain omega fats and nutrients that we need and complete proteins that we need. But also, it's funny, there, there's a point in Ketotarian where I even mention organ meats and people, like just to show people, look, you don't actually, if you're eating these nutrient-dense versions, sources of meat, you don't have to be a full-blown carnivore because you're focusing on nutrient density and you still could be predominantly plant-based, right? But still have these nutrient-dense meats in your diet. A hundred percent. And Dr. Ty Beal just did this really fascinating paper because you look at those like nutrient density scores, right? And they, it is critical when you evaluate them to look at their criteria, right? Because we've all seen the food compass. I don't know if you've talked about it at all. Not, it's no, this, I haven't on the show. Not at all. Okay. So it's this nutrient profile rating system that came out of a very, very well-respected university, Tufts University. And you see they categorize foods into foods to be encouraged 
which was <laughs> Lucky Charms, you know, like all of these cereals and, you know, chocolate covered almonds and things like that. And then foods to be minimized, you see eggs and, and beef and stuff like that. But what, how did they get there? A, they're, of course, demonizing saturated fat, which we know the there's not great science around that, like we've been told. And they're not taking processing into consideration, right? And they're not differentiating between synthetic and actual nutrients that you find in food. Okay, so Dr. Tybeal came in and said, we need to create a rating system with the right criteria, which looked at the nutrients that most people are deficient in, calcium, iron, folate, B12, vitamin A. And which are the richest sources of those nutrients? Because that's what we really need to do, right? We need to close our nutrient gaps. So it was liver, spleen, heart, kidney. It was like seven out, actually nine out of the 10 top foods were all animal products. Dark leafy greens was one in there. And so you'll see it is the absolute inverse of the food compass nutrient profiling system simply because the criteria they're using are very different. And I would say absolutely <laughs> a far better set of criteria over on Dr. Beale's side than the latter. Absolutely. You all know that my day job is running my functional medicine telehealth center. I've done it for the past 13 years. A major part of functional medicine and another word for it is integrative medicine. It's not either or, it's really inclusive and it's the best of all worlds when it comes to healthcare and giving people the best support that they need. So a component for many of my patients' case is us in functional medicine dealing with the physiological components to why they feel the way that they do, dealing with the root causes of, let's say, their underlying gut problem that's impacting their brain health or their different nutrient deficiencies or hormonal imbalances. But then simultaneously, we will integrate different other avenues within healthcare. And one tool that has been amazing for many of our patients is Talkspace. Talkspace makes therapy accessible and affordable. And sometimes many of us wait until something bad happens to us to actually talk to a therapist. But why wait? You can get a therapist through Talkspace right now. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light. I've truly seen that for our patients. At Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within just 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and so much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com and use code ABW. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use code ABW, that stands for Art of Being Well, to get $100 off your first month and show your support of the show. That's code ABW at Talkspace.com. So, okay, now let's talk about, I mean, oftentimes, even if you're going to look at quote unquote red meat, like saturated fat, rich foods, there is the reality of the fact that majority of meat that people are consuming today is not necessarily the type of meat that you and I would advocate as our top choice. So right. 
Can you talk about KFOs? What's the history of KFOs, and what's the state of meat in the United States today? Yeah, this is something we're so passionate about. Okay, so when you go into a grocery store today, ninety-five percent of the products you're going to come buy are coming from confined animal feeding operations, KFOs. Right? This is where thousands of animals are living on top of each other in really close quarters. Animals are taken from their natural environments, placed into stressful conditions. They're given total, like kind of fixed feed, which I'll tell you in a second is is a problem. Can make them sick. You know, then they can have liver issues. Then they're put on antibiotics growth promotants, um, they're just not living their best life, right? And they're creating this environmental degradation. Now they were be they began with great intentions. And I just, I love to acknowledge that, right? We saw this population boom coming. How are we going to create all this food? And so they just prioritized efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Uh, you know, we finally had supplements like vitamin A and D that we could give to animals, animals that need to be out on pasture. We had antibiotics, right? So antibiotics meant that they don't have to necessarily live in sanitary, super sanitary conditions. And we found out that they can make them grow a lot faster with far less feed. And so, yeah, today, most of our animal products are coming from confined animal feeding operations. Like I said, stressful for the animals. Dr. Fred Provenza, this is some of my favorite research. Do you know Dr. Fred Provenza? I don't, not personally, no. He has been studying animals and the way they eat for decades. And what he's found is that animals, just like humans, they self-medicate, right? They can prevent illness and they do reverse illness simply because they have this assortment of foods that they can choose for themselves. But when we feed animals one thing, they're, they can't do that anymore. And that's why a lot of these animals in confinement get sick. So that's mm -hmm. one issue. Then we have environmental pollution. So manure, it's kind of gross to think about, but it's actually fertilizer. It can be a very powerful asset returning nutrients to the earth and then helping to cycle those nutrients into our food and everything. But when we produce billions of tons of manure, like we do in these confined animal feeding operations where there's like 800,000 pigs, you know, it becomes a detriment. It runs off, it, it creates, there's E. coli, there's, you know, different hormones, it goes into the air and it creates, you know, asthma and allergies in people who live close to these conditions. So it creates dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico where things can't live anymore because of that runoff. And so we have environmental degradation and then we have the human additives or the additives that they're using like ractopamine that's banned in 160 countries, but still used in America to help them put on weight more quickly, antibiotic resistance, of course. We have a lot of antibiotics, 80% given to animals in the world to make them gain weight more quickly. And there was an attempt at regulation in 2016. So saying that you can't give it to animals to make them gain weight, but what they do is then they just say, oh, we're giving it to them to prevent illness. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a loophole where they can still use that. And then my last big issue with this kind of situation is that the social impact, right? Yeah. When we began the country, 50% of the people in the country were landowners. And when you're landowners, there's an investment in the land. You make the decisions that control the health of the land. And right now we have big corporations coming in and buying tens of thousands of acres and essentially outsourcing their pollution to us, right? right? And so it's kind of, it is creating the disappearance of rural communities in America. And even more scary than that is, is a loss of food sovereignty. We saw with the coronavirus pandemic, we are so fragile, right? If we do not have a sustainable source of food in our communities right. that we control, that supply is cut off. And then, and then what do we do then? So there's a number of issues with the way they're mm -hmm. raising animals today. But the fortunate thing is there's so many people waking up 
to these issues and a lot of people are actively creating solutions. My goodness, so. such good points. <laughs> and then you, we're all, with, from the food sovereignty standpoint, they were all hoarding toilet paper at Target, acting like that's gonna fix the problem. <laughs> fascinated by that toilet paper. I was like, I feel like I could make things work without it, but I like the food. The food I mean, it wouldn't be pretty, but it's like, yeah. for me, it's much more about securing high quality food. Toilet paper really low on the nutrient density scale. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I oh mean, maybe gosh. that's TMI. Yeah, no, TMI. Look, so, I mean, you're talking about from a, an environmental standpoint, why CAFOs are not a good idea from a food sovereignty, a social ethical equity standpoint. I mean, there's so many reasons why. So the solution, what is the solution? Let's start there. Yeah, what's the solution? How should we be getting our meat? Yeah, the solution is understanding, right? The system that we are a part of, that we invest in every time we choose what to eat, right? And then just making a different choice. So the really cool thing is people are really waking up to this type of agriculture called regenerative agriculture. And it isn't, you know, this new agey thing. It's something that we've been doing forever before, you know, the 1940s and 1950s when this huge centralization of animal agriculture took place. And so different, there's different flavors of regenerative agriculture, but it's at its heart, it's the only type of agriculture is different than organic because it's looking at your ecological outcomes, right? Like how is the health of this land right now? And how can we get it to a better place? Because we have, you know, different estimates, but about 50% of our soil is depleted. And it's not a super sexy topic, but but when soil is depleted, we don't get food, right? We don't have nutrient cycling. Some of our energy resources come from there. In one study, I read 80% of our antibacterial agents produced within a time frame came from the soil. So if we lose the topsoil, which we do with conventional agriculture, we are in for a very, very rude awakening. And so they just use practices that build the health of the topsoil and animals funny enough can be an absolutely critical part they right. are a critical part one of the foundations is animal integration because you need the fertilizer their manure right and also when they are rotated and put on pasture in a very highly managed way they're stimulating grass growth that grass is essentially acting like a straw that sucks carbon out of the air and it puts it underground so the earth 80 percent of the carbon is should be underground, right? We have too much in the air right now. And regenerative agriculture is one of the most beautiful ways and elegant ways to literally, with no inputs that are going to be detrimental, take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it underground. And recent research has shown that it's absolutely able to do that, but also restore biodiversity. Mm -hmm. A healthy, resilient ecosystem is biodiverse, right? And we are the only species that's kind of come in and tried to make our environment into, into these monocultures, into these really reductionistic ecosystems that, that just won't work, right? Mm -hmm. And so also water holding capacity. This is really fascinating. The more carbon you have in the in the soil, the more that water is able to be held. So we, we have these droughts, these floods, all these natural disasters. And what most people don't realize is it's not because we don't have the water. It's because our soil is no longer able to retain the water, right? And so we can reduce wildfires, droughts, floods. We can improve the quality of our food supply. We can mitigate climate change. I mean, regenerative agriculture, I, I sincerely believe, is the only way forward. Luckily, there are so many farmers and ranchers doing this now and really, really invested in it. And so I think that's the way to go. If you can, find out how you can 
meet and support a regenerative agriculture or a farmer in your area. Yeah, hundred percent. And you think of the the people, the well-intentioned, very well-intentioned, oftentimes vegan or more plant-based person out there, vegetarian out there that's thinking, I'm eating from an environmental standpoint. I'm doing my part, but yet the food they're eating are, are really, they're getting a lot of these mono these monocrops, right? That's going yeah. on right now. So maybe, I don't know, shed some light, light there. Yeah, you touched on it, but I think it's an important part to highlight. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So we hear all these crazy statistics like animal agriculture is responsible for 50% of greenhouse gas emissions or even, you know, 21%. And, and the reality is those numbers are often inflated. The 50% figure was, it was not even based on any sort of research and later retracted. So when you look at the world, right, it's it's about a 14.5%. And you have to consider that in developed nations like the United States, um, Europe, they're a lot more efficient. So here, we're looking at about 4.7% of emissions coming from plant agriculture, actually, 3.9 coming from animal agriculture, and around two coming from beef cattle. So you see the difference is like plants are actually responsible for more than animal agriculture. Now, as you mentioned and alluded to, there are different flavors of you know plant agriculture. Just because it's a plant doesn't mean it's sustainable, right? It can be grown in monoculture systems with fertilizers and pesticides use that are further degrading that topsoil. That is the very opposite of environmentally sustainable or helpful solution. Whereas on the other side, yes, conventional animal agriculture does have its detriments, right? And that's why shifting to something like regenerative agriculture could, could change that picture. There's really cool research done at White Oak Pastures, and they actually looked at different kinds of animal products, conventional beef, pork, chicken, on and on, and regenerative beef. And they found that, you know, for every pound of conventional beef produced, 33 pounds of um, carbon were released. But when it came to, you know, soy, I think was four and chicken was six and pork was nine. But regeneratively raised beef was the only one that worked as a carbon sink. So it like I think four point four, like four point five pounds per pound produced were actually sequestered. So wow. the only one that was absolutely a net positive for the environment. And if you're consuming fruits and vegetables that are being flown across the world, <laughs> right? Raised in a monoculture system that is doing far more harm than a regeneratively raised burger. And Dr. Will Harris, or not doctor, but Bill Harris, he is the founder of White Oak Pastures told me he knew there was a God when he got the results back because for every pound or every plant-based burger that people consume, they had to consume one of his regeneratively raised beef burgers in order to offset the environmental impact. Wow. I mean, you think about it. I mean, really what we're th talking about, you mentioned it's nothing new. We're just allowing nature to do what it's always been doing. Yes. If we just yes. get out of the way, we're just trying to replicate what has been done for millions and millions of years. That is what one of my favorite farmers, his name is John Arbuckle, told me. He said that, you know, human intervention is finite, right? But nature is like a horse behind a gate. And if you just let, if you just get out of her way and let her go, um, she will regenerate and she will make, you know, these biodiverse, healthy ecosystems. But yeah, we are the thing <laughs> getting in the way of that. It's interventionism, right? It, it's, it messes <laughs> yeah. things up every time. The well-intentioned, uh, yes. the thing that's oftentimes well in, Tension. Sometimes it's definitely not, but it is yeah. like we mess with things and we just, just cannot outdo nature. <laughs> we just can't. 
Uh, we can't. Yeah. And I love vegans. Like you said, like I, I, I really, I love anyone who has a heart for really getting into the nitty gritty, but there's just so much misinformation out there that that's why I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good for the planet. It's good for our mother earth, but it's also good for our health of which we're intimately connected to part of nature. Right? So can you talk about the nutrient density? That's the term of the, the episode, nutrient density between regular CAFO beef, the standard <laughs> beef, versus regenerative beef? What's the data show? Oh, it's such a good question. And that's going to depend on what you're looking at. So first of all, I've looked at dozens of studies because I'm doing my dissertation for this. And so we know that the one thing about conventional beef, I'm going to say higher levels of monounsaturated fat. All right. So if there is a darling of the fat category, it's loved by most most people. (laughs) People love it. And I will be the first to admit conventionally raised beef has higher levels of, of monounsaturated fat. But when you look at grass-fed beef, and there's many flavors, right? This is where the research gets tricky because grass-fed is not regulated right now. So that means that people can call their beef grass-fed if it was grass-fed in the beginning of the life, and then they finished it on grain. So when you look at, and this is what our research project is doing, beef that is grazed on grass for the entirety of their life. So grass-fed and grass-finished. Grass-fed and grass-finished. And even above and beyond that, grass-fed and grass-finished, not only on a monoculture type grass situation, but a very diverse pasture scenario. So this is where it gets really interesting. So lots of themes, but in general, higher levels of conjugated linoleic acid. This is CLA. And it's a really interesting fat that has been shown to have cancer protective properties. And it seems to inhibit body or be better for body composition and maybe cardiovascular disease risk. So Beef has higher levels, 1.5 to three times higher levels of CLA. It also has higher levels of a lot of times these longer chain omega-3 fatty acids like we were talking about and ALA. And so you're going to get more omega-3s. You're also going to get in certain studies, and I think this is a function of the soil, the health of the soil, you're going to get increased levels of minerals, sometimes B vitamins, definitely glutathione and also other antioxidants. The really cool thing that I think not a lot of people understand is phytonutrients are, you know, we typically think of them as plant-based nutrients, but we've found in animal products that consume grass and forage and diversity, you can have really high levels of phytonutrients in that meat. And this is, they've taken it one step further. One research group in 2010 looked at if we eat, you know, grass-fed and finished meat, it was kangaroo in this study, and compare it to conventionally raised beef, does that matter for the levels of inflammation in the body? Because we know there are nutrient differences, but does that really matter when you consume it? And in this research project, they showed that yes, significantly lower levels of inflammation post-meal when you consume the grass-fed and finished beef. And other recent trials have shown similar benefits, you know, weight loss reduction and, and various other things. But we're our project right now that Dr. Van Vliet is doing is going to look at first, we're looking at what happens when you raise animals in a regenerative acroological principle scenario. And we did show a lot of differences, especially in the fatty acids, right? Some long chain saturated fatty acids that we'll, we can talk about if you want, but but yeah, and more omega-3s, more CLA, less LA, the linoleic acid, but also, like you said, those higher levels of phytonutrients. And then the second phase of that trial or that project, he will be putting that, he'll go a plant-based burger, conventional beef burger, and then a um, regeneratively raised burger and look at inflammation after that. And then the last phase is he's going to look at 
what happens when you eat a completely regenerative diet versus a completely conventional diet? And what are the markers in the human body after that? So it's a really, really exciting area of research. So beef seems to be clear. We're going to get more cholesterol neutral saturated fatty acids, maybe more long chain saturated fatty acids, more omega-3 fatty acids, and more phytonutrients when it's grass-fed. And you'll see in pork and chicken and other um, animal products, the differences are even more extreme sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. in like eggs and dairy. I was thinking chicken Uh, and egg yolks. Exactly. Yes. More omega-3s, more vitamin A, more vitamin E, uh, more vitamin D a lot of time, especially in animals that are outside. And pork is actually one of the highest omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratios. It has, if you get it conventionally around... 35 to one, which you kind of want to aim to four to one or below. And a researcher and farmer I know was able to reduce that ratio down to five to one simply by feeding that pig grass. So yes, it it really matters. Amazing. Finally, studies are coming out and and are currently being done comparing regenerative farmed foods versus conventional. That's always irritated me about the studies. Like you're not actually looking at even good quality meat when you're looking at some of these studies. Well, I know. And I never saw my life go in this direction, but it was, it was just a hole that we needed to kind of fill and just to help people understand, because I think the environmental concerns one piece, but when you know that it's going to have a measurable impact on your health as well, like, I think that's, yeah, that's exciting. Right. Well, yeah. what's good for the planet is good for us. Right. And it makes complete sense. <laughs> We're a part of nature. Not, I mean, I just like, it always gets me. It's like the height of hubris to say like somehow we are separate than nature and and really being a part of that cycle of life is the ultimate eco way of living i think you can't separate it yeah. like you said like if if we destroy the topsoil which we will we won't be eating and right. we won't this living. is a so, yeah. massive environmental problem and obviously human health issue too. So I, yeah. and we talked a little bit about egg yolks here, but like I've, I've seen this over the years of eating eggs, the difference of the richness of the color of the egg yolk when it's, when that chicken's out grazing and eating insects versus some sort of CAFO egg. I mean, can you talk about the nutrient, the color difference of egg yolks and the nutrient density of that? Yeah, it's funny. I went to the first time I noticed it was when I went to Uruguay and I had these, they made me the eggs and I was like, what is this? It's just this rich, deep, like almost orange. Yeah, it's a dark orange. Watery yellow kind of situation for a lot of confined animal feeding operation eggs. And so, yeah, and we see that cows are interesting because they they biohydrogenate their nutrients, right? And so a lot of these fats, these uh, omega-3 polyunsaturated fats are actually turned into saturated fats. So pork and chicken, they don't do that. And so when you consume a high grain, grain-based diet, you end up with more of those polyunsaturated fatty acids. So first thing is you're going to get a lot more omega-3s in that egg yolk, a lot more vitamin A and a lot more vitamin E and vitamin D as well. So a lot of different, yeah, enhanced nutrient profile. As you know, the podcast, it's called The Art of Being Well. At the end of every episode, we have Your Art of Being Well. This is Autumn's Art of Being Well. So I want to pick your brain a few different things about your wellness routine and tips and tricks and all the things. So question number one, what's the worst tasting healthy food that you think it tastes freaking disgusting, but you still eat it because it's there's so much nutrition around, nutrition science around it? <laughs> It'd be liver. Yeah, me too. For sure liver. Yeah. You know, my brother, he actually eats it in the shower just in case he vomits. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Is, so. Do you have any pro like pro tips to make it better tasting? 
Yeah, I put it in capsules. But no, other than that, other than that, I've tried um, soaking it in milk. Okay. Marginally better. I'm not going to say it's a lot better. It's still liver. But also you can mix it, right? Yeah, that's mix what I do. I cut it with regular liver meat. Liver blend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the best way forward. Yeah. I love it. Out of any trip, any place in the world, what's your dream vacation? Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. Well, I've seen a lot of places. I, I think that... For some reason, when I went on a world tour, Istanbul really spoke to me. I don't know. It was the confluence of culture with the Asian port, the European port. And it was was just like mesmerizing. So I'd really like to just bring my son back one day and just show him all of the different ways of life and uh, in Istanbul and Turkey for some reason. I've never been to Istanbul, but I love Turkish culture and people. The coffee. The wow. co- Turkish guy. Yeah. So many good things out of Turkey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are two supplements that have been the biggest game changers for you personally? Ooh. Okay. I think that, I mean, they're going to be my supplements. Is that okay? No, totally. Okay, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So organ meats, we were talking about it. Love the liver. Hate to eat it. So organ complex has been game changing for my energy levels and endurance levels. And uh, the essential C is also, I just, it's funny. I didn't, I've always had, my brain's my weak link, right? I'm prone to depression, anxiety, mental health stuff. And so I dug in the research around vitamin C. And um, when I take more vitamin C, it seems to be very helpful for my brain. And so I do a little bit more than most people would. And that's been really impactful. If I had to name one that is not from my company, I would say ashwagandha. I think it really has helped me maintain, you know, focus and just kind of like chill out. And so I, I do use it cyclically. As- it's got adaptogen, vitamin C. How much, I mean, do you know how many milligrams of vitamin C you have? Like what do you, what's you, what do you personally use? Yeah, I do about a gram a day of food-based vitamin C, right? So it's it's different than ascorbic acid. Yeah. And it would be because there's so many other components in there. I would like to say it's probably, you know, the equivalent of two or three grams. That's just very crude, a crude estimate that I just made up right there, but a gram. And they estimate that like our Paleolithic ancestors had maybe 450 400 milligrams a day, which is why we chose about 450 for our serving. But but I doubled that. I love that your formula too. So I, I don't have the formula in front of me, but is it from things like Astrola, Camu Camu? What, what's that look like? Yeah. And Amla Berry. Yep. The three, and it's unripe Acerola cherry. So that keeps the levels of vitamin C even higher. And then yeah, Camu Camu and Amla is a revered berry in Ayurvedic medicine. And there's a really cool trial I like to mention is where they took smokers who have high levels of oxidative stress and they used ascorbic acid or they used Camu Camu juice, like a whole food vitamin C. And it was only the food base was actually able to reduce levels of inflammation. So they're different. There's a time and place for both, but but I definitely do food-based when I can. Yeah, I love that. And also one of the things that I, I've seen be a needle mover for people, especially the more plant-based people, but even not, even people that have hormonal problems that have are more prone to lower iron levels. Can you talk yes. about vitamin C's importance of improving iron bioavailability? Yes, it does. It enhances the absorption of iron significantly. And so, yeah, if you consume it, and that's why I kind of consume my organ meats with my vitamin C. And so, and also for plant-based vitamin C, if you consume your vitamin C with, you know, other plant-based sources of iron, that's going to definitely enhance the bioavailability there too. So 
fascinating. Vitamin C does a million wonderful things. It does, it does. And it's great for your skin health too, as well. Yeah. It's great antioxidant. Yes. Your immune system. It helps collagen synthesis, tons of things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what is a spiritual or mindfulness practice that has that do you do on a regular basis? What's the top go-to there? Yeah, I have two. Well, one that I've done forever, and it's just gratitude in the morning. First thing I do is I wake up, and there's three things I'm grateful for, right? And I have a baby boy. He's not a baby. He's seven. Oh. And we do what went right kind of at the end of a day. I let him do his rose and his thorn. What that. went right, what didn't go right. But more recently, I've really gotten back into heart math. And that, it's it's fascinating to watch what helps you achieve coherence, if anyone's familiar with it. And what I've found lately is the more I can say I am open to whatever today has to offer and I am riding with life rather than working, it's that for some reason, just that practice of at least once a day saying, okay, I'm open. Like I'm meeting you where you are life. Whereas I'm used to like trying to force life into something I want it to be. But that's also my more current practice. I love that. What's your favorite... <laughs> restaurant in the world. And when you're there, what do you order there? Oh, okay. Well, I have to say this. We just started a burger restaurant. So I have, it's a regenerative burger restaurant what? in Boulder. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, I have to go there. Uh, oh, please come visit. So we're always long in hamburger. We're really passionate about utilizing the entire animal, right? Never wasting anything. And when I came from California, they had a lot of good grass-fed burgers. Pure Burger in San Diego was the best of the best. So when we got to Boulder and we realized there's no grass-fed burgers, we had to create that in Boulder. And so I do grass-fed burger. You know, if I'm feeling crazy, I do a gluten-free bun. If I'm not, I do lettuce wrap, but I, I get all the protein. So I get two burger patties, egg, avocado, lettuce, onion, tomato, sometimes bacon. <laughs> and I just... That's what that I do. That is I go. my ideal meal. I am such a simple guy, but like if I go anywhere, I'm like, where's the locus gr local uh, grass-fed beef joint? Now, next time in Boulder, what's the name of your place? It's called Wild Pastures Burger Company. You have to come. Oh my gosh. We'll meet you. I have to. Yeah. I mean- it, Oh, and the fries are cooked in tallow. There's no sugar in the whole thing. My gosh. My son Solomon's going to be freaking out when he hears this episode. <laughs> Do you, I mean, if it's not on the menu yet, I, because I, I love regular fries. Don't get me wrong. Especially if it's cooked in a good yeah. oil like that, yeah. good fat like that. Do you have sweet potato fries? If not, can we get them on the menu? That is in, yeah, we can definitely <laughs> talk about that. Let's talk about that. Well, we have right now regular fries, and then we have a zucchini and onion haystack that's gluten free and fried pickles. But I do feel like, yeah. you know, like, natural progression. Yeah. Next, next phase, we'll do some sweet potato fries. <laughs> we call them the Dr. Will Cole sweet potato fries, chipotle aioli, <laughs> little spicy, maybe sriracha type situation. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. All the sauces are house made, and they are just, oh, yeah. So, Amazing. yes, but yes. Potato. We'll do I'll it. We'll do it after you. <laughs> I'm telling you, my wife, if we could live anywhere, it'd be Colorado or Montana in a yurt somewhere. So she, she'd be down. Let's go visit. I'll visit. Let's do it. Right. That sounds awesome. What's the weirdest wellness thing that you've done that you're willing <laughs> to admit on a podcast right now? <laughs> There's two. Okay. So I love vitamin C, right? So, I, and it's not that weird, right? Just a vitamin C flush. I made my team do it back in the day. I made my husband and Matt, you know him. Yeah. And they were, you know, it's just taking vitamin C to bowel tolerance, right? Oh, Which yeah. means that. 
So there's that. Okay, that was pretty weird. So you basically, but... I, I we do this for some patients too. You basically yeah. dose vitamin C to a point where it's increasing GI motility. It's a great, honestly, for people that have sluggish GI motility. It's a tool within the toolbox. It is, absolutely. And the other one's just a coffee enema. So I did the, and and right, it's not that weird when you kind of grasp, when you, I there was a lot of resistance. I was like, I am not doing that. And then I did it and I was like, oh, Whoa, that was interesting. So it's done to help improve detoxification. Yeah. And it made me like this natural, like calm, energized thing. So there it hey, is. Hey, great. Another de- detox tool. I've written about it. It's definitely yeah. too. Yeah. I, I, I realize that I'm asking that question for any of my friends on the show. It's like weird <laughs> is so relative. Like it a is. big broad yeah. swath of the wellness world will be like, ah, oh, that's called a Thursday for me. <laughs> then, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in the mainstream world's like, what? You are a bunch of freaking weirdos. I, <laughs> I was going more the mainstream direction. I'm it. sure there's weird stuff I've done. Those are, those are the podcast friendly. I love it. So my friend, I am such a fan of your work. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Where can they go to get the amazing regenerative grass-fed goodness that you 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 have in the world? Oh my goodness. So paleovalley.com is one place. If you're more into snacks, we do Gra- beef sticks. My favorite beef sticks in the world. I love the jalapeno ones. I love the summer sausage one. I, I love them all, but the jalapeno is my favorite. Me too. It's just got that little kick at the yeah. end. There's nothing too overpowering the about it. The teriyaki one is good too. It is. That's yeah. just slightly sweet, just yeah. a little bit of honey. But yeah, they're regenerative. They're from regenerative farms. And so you can support those farmers. And also we have bone broth and all the things. But then we have Wild Pastures too, which is our more recent company. And this came because we had relationships with beef stick you know, suppliers, farmers. And they were teaching us about regenerative ag. But we saw that most people didn't know where to find it right? You don't, and also you didn't know how to afford it because it was way more expensive. And so what we've done is we've paired with them, cut out the middlemen. And so we just deliver regenerative meats straight to your door. There's 15 and 25 pound boxes that you can totally customize. And the best part is it's 40% lower cost than other meat delivery services. And it's regenerative. So a lot of meat delivery services are flying meat from New Zealand. I get it. There's higher standards. But again, if you're thinking about the environmental impact of that, not only are you (laughs) increasing your carbon footprint, but also you're robbing American farmers of the opportunity to rehabilitate our ecosystems and create a sustainable food supply. So that's wildpastures.com. And then, of course, if you want to have a burger, wildpasturesburger.com. We are supporting regenerative farmers there, too, and hope to franchise soon. Thank you, my friend. This has been such a great conversation. Come back anytime. Yeah, thanks, Will. You've been great. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.
please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.